go. Uh, Jonathan is on staff at Bethany Greenlake. He is the Missions and Outreach Associates, and uh, that means his role supports ministry at all the different Bethany locations, which is really wonderful. Uh, they have a great team that he's a part of. Many of you will recognize Jonathan. He was on the panel this last Monday when we were uh, all uh, taking part in the Dr. David Leong uh, message uh, on race and place and social distancing. Jonathan helped convene that group. He's one of the leaders, staff resources for our Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation. So uh, really grateful for his role there. Uh, Jonathan is a graduate of the University of Washington. He studied uh, international studies and relations. He grew up in Federal Way. So he is a local guy and we love that. Uh, but most importantly, Jonathan is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that uh, I've enjoyed about him and the time he's been on staff, he's, uh, he's a pretty deep thinker. And I really uh, enjoy being able to um, kind of listen for his insights and gain uh, his wisdom uh, in the different roles that he plays in our ministry at Bethany. So we're really happy to have Jonathan. Uh, you can join me in welcoming him in just a moment. But first, uh, let me pray for Jonathan and his message and the scripture that we're about to heard read. Let's pray. Lord God, we're opening up your word now and we're uh, trusting you to uh, teach us. We know that the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit is alive and well. And so we ask that uh, all the gifts of the Spirit would uh, come to bear during this time, that you would use Jonathan and his voice and his story for your glory. We're thankful that his family could be here cheering him on, friends. And thank you, God, that as a servant of Bethany Community Church, we are all uh, with him and for him and excited to hear him give this word today. Bless him, calm his nerves, and help him to speak with confidence the word that you've given to him. And may uh, this uh, story from the book of Acts not simply be a story on a page, but something that transforms our hearts. Uh, we love you and we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you can find the scripture reading for this morning in your online bulletin, which I will repost into the chat. This is Acts 5, verses 29 through 32. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Take it away, Jonathan. All right. Thank you, Travis, for the introduction. Thank you, Bethany Eastside, for having me. This is actually my first time preaching at a Bethany location, so what an honor it is. I'm so grateful. I'm excited. Um, yeah, thank you, Travis, for that uh, passage. Um, as we get into it, I'll just continue with the word of prayer, and then we'll continue. So, God, we are grateful that you speak to us through your word. May we be people who not only listen, but obey faithfully. Let us um, dialogue with what you have to say for us, and may we just respond faithfully. So, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. So, uh, in this past January, I began taking this deeper interest in the spiritual discipline of simplicity. And I was reading books about it, I was listening to podcasts, I was even leading a small group discussion about it, and I became convinced that following Jesus meant living simply, resisting the materialism, the consumerism of our culture. And I was actually 
starting to feel quite proud and smug of the progress I was making over the past few months. Uh, but even like just a month ago, I was in my room one morning and I was putting on my watch and I noticed that one of the straps broke and my first reaction was, no, my beautiful watch. And then my second reaction was, well, I guess it's time to buy a new watch. And I started daydreaming about what that would look like. And then I remembered I had some super glue on my desk and in a few minutes I had fixed and saved my watch. But then I realized, wow, that's so ridiculous. Why was I so quick to throw away this perfectly good watch? And hadn't I just been preaching to everyone and to myself that following Jesus means living simply and contently? What happened to all of that? Well, it seems that this power of consumerism was still working in my life and battling for my loyalty to simplicity in Jesus. And this was a power that said my, dis my possessions are disposable. Any slight defect means I need to get rid of them. And obeying this power, similar to other powers, was compromising my true loyalty to Jesus. And so we live in a society with endless power that are all competing and demanding for our loyalty. And sometimes this power can be very obvious, maybe like a political candidate saying, hey, vote for me. Um, other times it's more subtle, like the powers of consumerism, which uh, were at work in my case. But nevertheless, these powers oppose our loyalty to Jesus, our true authority, our true king. And so in the midst of these competing powers, what does it look like to live out our loyalty to Jesus? And this narrative and acts that we're going to look at today um, it is a story about the apostles. And when we look at what happens, we, we see three lessons about what true loyalty to Jesus, the Messiah, looks like. And we see that loyalty to Jesus is, one, a challenge to the powers of this world. Two, it is costly. And finally, it is communicated. So let's look into the story. The passage that Travis read is, is part of a larger story uh, between chapters 5, verse 17, and 42. And in this story, the apostles are confronted and persecuted by the Jewish religious leaders. And, and in the passage that Travis read, Peter says that he and the apostles must obey God rather than humans. And so this is their powerful declaration of loyalty to Jesus over and above all human authorities. But in order to understand the significance of this declaration of loyalty, we need to go back to the beginning of the story, back in uh, verse 17. So the apostles had been miraculously healing people in the name of Jesus and were drawing more and more attention to what's going on. And the high priests and the Sadducees were getting really upset at all this. They had early told the apostles that they weren't supposed to preach in the name of Jesus. Um, and when they find that they're still doing that, they arrest them and they throw them in jail to uh, await a trial against them. But um, the next morning, the Sadducees of Sanhedrin, they look for the apostles and they're super confused when they find this, there's an empty jail cell and the door locked. And it, what happened was there's an angel that appeared at night that rescued the apostles and told them, hey, go out to the temple and continue preaching about uh, the way, the life that what Luke calls what is, what he calls the Christian movement. And so the Sadducees, they arrest the apostles again. They question them and say, hey, we told you to stop preaching. Now all sorts of people in Jerusalem are hearing about this teaching. What's going on? And so this is when the apostles are like, sorry, not sorry. We obey God, not humans. And so in order to appreciate the deeper significance of this loyalty, it's helpful to ask why the teaching about Jesus make the Jew Jewish political and religious leaders so upset and so it's helpful to look at the power dynamic of this time. So the Sadducees that we mentioned earlier, they were a Jewish religious sect. 
And like the rest of the Jewish people at this time, they were under Roman occupation. And however, the Sadducees had a special deal with uh, the Romans. And basically the Romans were saying, look, we will let you do your religion because kind of like live out your, your, your things like that. But um, if you allow religious acts that suggest riots or rebellions or revolutions, then that's can't, that can't happen. But if you kind of keep things under control, we'll give you a lot of political and religious authority. We'll even give you authority over the temple, your most holy and sacred building and space, the place where God dwells. And we'll also re reserve the right to choose your high priest. And if you don't keep your end of the deal, we're going to take back our power. So the Sadducees had a lot of religious, political, and social incentives to be wary of any religious movement that seemed any way revolutionary. So what made the early Christians, what made the apostles so threatening to the religious leaders and to the Romans? Well, when we jump to the end of the story, Luke says that the apostles never stopped teaching the good news that Jesus was the Messiah. And so this title Messiah is significant because it implies all loyalty and allegiance rightfully belongs to Jesus. So normally when I used to think of Messiah, I thought of it as someone who, who saved me, saved me from my sins, saved me from you know, eternal punishment. Um, but the word Messiah, when you look at it in the Bible, has a, a deeper and richer biblical meaning. It's loaded with royal and political significance. And so when you look at the Hebrew scriptures, the Jews in this time expected the Messiah to be this kingly figure, someone from the line of Abraham, Judah, and David, and this figure would liberate them from their foreign oppression and create peace and justice. A New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, he said that the Messiah would do two things. One, the Messiah would rebuild or restore the temple, and two, would fight the decisive battle against the enemy. And so in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus the Messiah, the true Messiah, accomplished these things, but not in the way that people expected him to. So rather than rebuild the physical temple, Jesus confronted the corrupted temple authorities by driving up the money changers, and he challenged the religious authority of his day. And many scholars believe it was actually Jesus' prophetic acts against the te temple that he upset the religious leaders so much that they said, we're going to arrest you, and then that led to his execution. And Jesus was also expected to build this worldly empire that would battle and overthrow the Roman Empire. But instead, he announced this kingdom that rather than dominating through violence, power, and wealth, would challenge all earthly powers uh, by ruling through self-giving love. And this love Jesus demonstrated uh, most powerfully at, on his cruci crucifixion. So when the apostles are preaching that the kingdom proclaiming temple-defying Jesus had been risen and is the true messiah they were challenging the religious and political authorities of their day when they were filled by the spirit of god living as many temples in genuine community and hospitality performing healings and miracles and teaching the name of jesus the messiah they were saying to the world that jesus is the true king above all kings and this is what his kingdom looks like but the earthly authorities were threatened by this because if jesus is the true king then the Caesar is not. Caesar, the Roman Empire, is not. And our allegiance should belong to Jesus, not to Caesar, nor to any other empire. And so that's why the apostles were such a threat to the religious and political elite. Loyalty to Jesus and his gospel undermined their very power structure that kept them comfortable and powerful. And so the church has continued this legacy of living out a loyalty to Jesus that challenges the powers of our world.
pastor and community organizer, Alexia Sabatierra, she co-wrote a book called Faith Rooted Organizing, Mobilizing the Church in Service of the World. And there's a part in her book where she described the Central American Sanctuary Movement in the 1980s in which um, uh, roughly 500,000 Central Americans came to the United States fleeing civil wars. And both my parents, who are on a Zoom call today, are included in this number as they too fled civil war from El Salvador during this time. So U.S. policy, U.S. asylum policy was and, and still is incredibly unjust. And so at the time, it set a different um, set of standards for individuals from hostile countries than for U.S. allies. And the U.S. government had been funding Central American dict dictatorships for many years. And human rights organiz organizations were documenting widespread human rights atrocities in Guatemala. But nevertheless, only 5% of Central American migrants um, uh, were approved for political asylum. So this left many Central Americans who had fled to the U.S. vulnerable to deportation and even death if they were to return home. So when the migrants discovered that they couldn't get political asylum in the U.S., they asked for sanctuary in our churches. And so sanctuary is a term drawn from the biblical concept in Numbers 35, in which the people of God are instructed to provide refuge for people vulnerable to being unjustly punished. And so all of this led to the development of the 1980s Central American Sanctuary Movement, in which at its height saw hundreds of congregations across the country providing sanctuary for Central American refugees. And so the Christians in this movement, they risked arrest and prosecution to remain loyal to Jesus who asked us to love our vulnerable neighbors. And this loyalty challenged the dark powers of the world. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world. And this is what the sanctuary churches were, were doing. They were challenging the, part, the dark powers behind violence and war, the powers behind our immigration system that denied asylum to thousands of Central Americans who were fleeing wars fueled by our very own military intervention. And so these churches received a lot of criticism, including, including from fellow Christians. They were accused of being lawbreakers who disobeyed the authority of our legal system, but because of their loyalty to Jesus, these churches, like the apostles in our story, challenged the religious and legal authorities of their day. And they said they must obey God rather than humans. So how can we express this kind of loyalty that challenges the empire and powers of our day? There are many ways, but just for the sake of consistency, one way we can follow the example of the sanctuary churches by standing in solidarity with immigrants. This kind of solidarity challenges the powers of our world who, who demonize immigrants as, as drug dealers, criminals, or rapists, and demonstrates our loyalty to Jesus, the refugee who was forced to fled, flee Egypt as a baby, and today as a Messiah King, loves, welcomes, and values the foreigner in our midst. And so while the pandemic has disrupted um, some of the ministries that I work with, one opportunity that it has actually created is something I'm really excited about. I'm currently working with our World Relief uh, Seattle partner to figure out how can we use our women's shelter resources, which currently aren't being used because of the coronavirus, how can we use those resources to provide shelter for immigrants uh, who are being released from our Northwest Immigration Detention Center down in Tacoma? And so this is just one way out of many that we as a church are living out our loyalty to the kingdom of Jesus rather than the empires of our world. But loyalty to Jesus that challenges the powers of, of our world is costly, and we see this in the next part of our story. So let's, let's go back and see what happened. The Sadducees Sanhedrin, they find the apostles in the temple teaching about Jesus, and they're really upset. 
But the apostles are like, too bad, we obey God in that year. So then the apostles have the audacity to remind the, uh, the religious leaders of the gospel right to their face. And they're saying, this is the story of Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. And this makes the religious people so mad that they're ready to lynch them right there and then, even though they technically don't have the authority. So this is when Gamaliel comes in and sort of rescues them. And Gamaliel was one of the most influential Pharisaic leaders of this time. And the Pharisees were a different religious sect, in some ways similar to the Sadducees, in some ways not. But what Gamaliel says is they need to kind of calm down and leave these apostles alone because if God is not with them, they're going to fail, just like every other kind of revolutionary movement before them. But if God is with them, then nothing they can do will be able to stop them. So the religious leaders are like, okay, fine, but we still need to teach them a lesson. And so they flogged the apostles, and then they say, stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And then the apostles then rejoice for being worthy of being uh, of suffering for the sake of Jesus. And now, when I first read the story, I think because it moves so quickly from the flogging to the rejoicing, that I, I miss the significance of this flogging. Um, if you remember from the Jesus passion narrative, Jesus was flogged before his crucifixion. And I'm not going to go into the gory details, but let's just say it was a lot worse than being spanked as a kid. It was this incredibly brutal, painful, shameful form of punishment. God rescued the apostles from um, jail. And he, he rescued them from being lynched, but he didn't rescue them from being flogged. And so they still paid a significant price for their loyalty. And this demonstrated the costliness of loyalty to Jesus. And so many of us today, uh, as Jesus' followers, we don't have to make that costly choice between loyalty to Jesus and being in prison or being flogged or executed. I think it's important to acknowledge that many Christians even today still have to make that costly choice and we have so much to learn from them. But for today, I think I want to look at the parallels that exist between the costly loyalty of the apostles and what that means for us today. I think for far too many Christians in the West, including myself, we have replaced this costly loyalty with a cheap loyalty, with a convenient loyalty, with a comfortable loyalty, which really isn't any loyalty at all. We tell ourselves we can have it all. We can love Jesus, worship him, and bow down before him. But we also, we can love the other authorities of this world at the same time. And we say, Jesus is great, he is king. Unless following him becomes inconvenient or uncomfortable. And so what does it mean for us today to express that costly loyalty to Jesus? What does that even look like? So about a year ago, I am at our Green Lake campus in our community life center building. And I hear a knock on the rear entrance door and I see uh, someone who appears to be a homeless man and I go out and I open the door slightly to, to hear what he needs. And he's asking to be let inside so he can talk to someone who, who can help him. And I, I, um, I tell him, sorry, I can't. I can't let him inside. And just for the background, I work with this kind of population. This is part of my, part of my job. But this man continues to insist to be let inside. I continue to deny that request. And eventually he gets very, escalates and gets very upset with me. And he, he kind of lunges at me and charges me. And, and so I kind of step back and I tell him, hey, you need to leave or I'm going to call the police. And he starts yelling at me and taunting me and saying these things. And... So I start to call the police. He recognizes that. He, he, um, he then walks in and he's still hanging out in the parking lot. So I go out just to kind of check on him. He sees me and he again starts kind of verbally abusing me, taunting me, getting close to me. And at one point I thought we were actually about to, you know, be a physical confrontation. But fortunately nothing happens. And then he sort of walked away. 
but the whole thing rattled me and I was really upset. I felt, you know, I felt embarrassed. I felt shame for not even fighting back. And it, there was insecurities that kind of came up. And, and so I went to the CLC, the community life center back, back to that building. And I started these intense rounds of shadow boxing. And I'm telling you, I was not holding back. I was throwing combos. I was sweating. I was, you know, my feet were shuffling and gliding and squeaking across the bathroom floor. And I am showing no mercy to my imaginary opponent who happens to look like the man I had just met earlier. And I know how ridiculous this all sounds. Can you imagine someone walking in on me and thinking, Jonathan, what, who are you? Why are you fighting the air? What is going on? Why are you sweating? That would be a lot to explain. But in the moment, I don't care. I feel wronged. I feel ashamed and humiliated. And even though I knew what it was threatening me to do, there's this power of violent revenge that was demanding my loyalty. And this power was saying, no matter what Jesus said about loving your enemies and resisting nonviolence, I deserve revenge. And I had the right, I felt I had the right to make him feel as humiliated as he made me feel. And so I hold on to this right with literally tightly clenched fists. So a few days pass, and I'm walking around Green Lake and still reflecting on what happened and still wrestling with kind of what these feelings of revenge. And as I'm walking, Pastor kind of reminds me that there is a different way. And he invites me to soften my heart and let go of the resentment I had toward this man. And so I start to pray for him. I start to ask for forgiveness. I start to forgive him and to ask for forgiveness for my unloving attitude. And this wasn't easy, it wasn't natural, it was hard actually, it was, it was costly. It was actually a lot easier to hold on to my anger, to my unforgiveness, but I knew that woes that Jesus demanded that I reject the demands of the authority of violent revenge and instead remit Jesus who calls us to bless those who curse us and pray for those who persecute us and to love the very people who wish us harm because that's what costly loyalty to Jesus requires of us. And the powers of our world today are telling us there is a clear divide between us and them. And they say that we need to love us and we need to hate them. But loyalty to Jesus means loving them because he loved us. Because he loved us so much, he rescued us from sin, from the slavery of idolatry, from the, from the dark powers of this world, even though we did nothing to deserve it. He is the Messiah King, but he's not like other kings. He is a king who rules with love, and this is the kind of king that we follow. This is the kind of king where we are loyalty, and so our loyalty must be expressed in costly, enemy-loving love. And so we're able to do this because he sent his spirit of love to dwell in our bodies. And so may our loyalty to Jesus be expressed in this kind of love. So who are your enemies? Those the world has told you you need to despise. Maybe it's a politician or an institution. Maybe it's those who subscribe to a particularly uh, ideology that you just find repulsive. Maybe it's people who are demanding that we're we wear masks or people who refuse to wear masks. Uh, or maybe it's a main relative who posts and shares the most infuriating posts on Facebook and you are just being driven crazy by it all. Whoever or whatever it may be, what would it cost you to show them love the ways that Jesus does? How does the love of Jesus shape how we are to show love for them? including those who we may label as our enemies. And so finally, when we look at the story, we see that loyalty to Jesus is communicated. And like I said earlier, this, this narrative ends by the apostles 
uh, never stopping teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is right after they were brutally whipped and almost literally or proclaiming this very truth. And so that part of the story really challenges me because I have never been very good or brave in verbally communicating my loyalty to Jesus to non-believers. People, I think they know or they knew I'm a Christian, but rarely did I take an opportunity to, to communicate my faith as a true, and Jesus as a true Messiah, at least not verbally. And this is the most important truth in all creation. So why is it so hard sometimes to say that, to proclaim that? I think part of the reason um, is that I have told myself it's lie. And as long as I am a really nice, friendly person, that people will somehow realize the gospel message by my nice acts alone, which conveniently, conveniently forgets the many non-Christians who are much kinder and pleasant than I am. But the apostles don't seem to believe this lie. For them, the gospel message of Jesus as a saving king needs to be communicated courageously and verbally. So for the past two summers, I've strategic visits to our global partner, Roble Alto Child Care Association in Costa Rica. And so they are a Christian organization that empowers vulnerable families to overcome the cycle of poverty. And at the end of my first trip, our team sits down in a house owned by Roble Alto, and we have a chat with Pamela Shiana, who is the Director of International Partnerships, and she begins telling us a bit of the story of Roble Alto. At one point, she talks about how Roble Alto was just having so much success in keeping families together and reunited families who, who were separated, that government institutions were asking them, hey, what's your secret? Like, what are you guys doing that is just so successful? And they tell them just straight up, like, it's because of our faith, because of just the foundations of, of our faith in Jesus and the way we, we do our ministry that reflects that. And the government was like, well, is it possible to do kind of all the stuff you do without all of that Jesus stuff? And again, Robaldo's like, sorry, it's just, it's not possible. And similarly, when they are asking for funding from governments or other organizations, they are um, having pressure to, um, to kind of remove some of their explicitly Christian content in that. But again, Roble Alto is staying firm and saying, no, Jesus is Lord over Roble Alto. And so this really challenges me. And I think that when we look at Roble Alto and we look at what Roble Alto, um, the way that they challenge the power of the world, the way that they express a costly loyalty to Jesus and the way that they communicated their loyalty by their words and their actions, they affirm that Jesus, because Jesus is Lord and Savior, they cannot bow down to the authorities of money and worldly power. But because Jesus is Lord over Roble Alto, the Lordship must be communicated because Jesus, the Messiah, is truly good news. Roble Alto's story and the story about the apostles challenges how I uh, want to live out my loyalty to Jesus. And maybe it challenges you as well. So let's follow their example. Let's be people who challenge the powers of this world by our loyalty to Jesus, the Messiah. Let's be people who choose to live a costly loyalty rather than a cheap loyalty. Let's be people who courageously communicate to each other and to the world the good news that Jesus is the Messiah who saves. So if this seems like a, a, an incredible challenge, it, it should. It, it's really hard. And that's why we can be encouraged by the words of Peter and uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 32, when he reminds us that God gives the Holy Spirit to those who are obedient to him. 
And so loyalty to Jesus is impossible without being empowered by the Holy Spirit. So our task is to nurture that, that spirit of loyalty within us. And so Bethany has talked a lot about spiritual disciplines, about our rule of life. So when we do things like Bible studies, simplicity, Sabbath, service, silence, um, you know, all those spiritual disciplines, let's do them in a way that deepens our allegiance, our loyalty to the one true authority and king of creation, Jesus the Messiah. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again that we can be encouraged, we can be challenged by reading your word, Lord. May you speak to us, may we listen, may we create space in our lives and our days and our weeks to allow your spirit to work and to move us closer to who you want us to be. May we be people who follow the example of the apostles and people who, who remember that, who we're loyal to, who we're loyal to, who is our true king. And we recognize we can't do it alone. So may you send our spirit. May we do this in community, Lord. May we be people who declares a different allegiance. Not allegiance to the powers of our world, but allegiance to you, Lord. Because that's, that's our call. And that's good news. May that be a powerful witness to the world around us, Lord. We're grateful. May you be with us. And we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Travis, feel free to continue. All right. We're going to go to our breakout rooms. So uh, the breakout questions.